गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तृष्णा कृष्ण भक्ताय साय नमो नम सो प्रणाम टू ऑल ऑफ यू एंड ग्रीटिंग्स फ्रॉम काली कोलम्बिया दिस टाइम लास्ट वीक वी वर इन Bogota which is the capital city of Colombia now we are in Cali which is kind of another of the main cities of Cali probably the third biggest city along with Bogota and Medellin so Cali with C not with K although we remain in Cali U but we have the golden age of Mahapur inside it so there is a possibility of another Cali with C <laughs> so i am in a place called Shamashram a very beautiful place that i've been invited last year first time this is the second time here and uh we have begun yesterday a seminar on, in spanish on prayer so that has been going nicely today in the morning i had we had a second meeting and today in the evening i had a third meeting and also it's a, a third lecture today along with this one so today is one of those intense days dynamic lecture days but i'm happy to somehow be engaged in in service and sharing so yeah we had a nice meeting today we were talking a little bit about the importance of just a brief report and and also by the way i'm making some brief experiment today in instagram and i'm streaming live there as well but you keep on on zoom i prefer those who can stay in zoom better so we can see each other's face and so on but i'm just making some ex technological experiments so that's for you for those who are seeing me in instagram just for you to know what's going on uh so yeah today we were talking about uh the importance of being present in the present moment i mean i talk about this in radical personalism briefly and how interestingly the word pre the word that is used for present of course is present in english and also we use that word to refer to a gift no i'm giving you a present mm -hmm. so interestingly this is the exact same word like implying there's no better gift to give than a present to that the present moment that being present fully present i mean all this in the context of of course of prayer and how prayer cannot happen if we are not in the present and technically speaking nothing can happen outside of the present moment now if we just let our minds go shopping <laughs> to the future tense or to the past tense we are just evading reality and uh and also we were studying like reflecting on the important point that many times we are terrified about the present because confronting embracing the present means confronting so many fears so many unresolved stuff that we need to confront and we need to confront by way of uh actually disidentifying and uh, 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 disidentifying ourselves from them one thing is to identify <laughs> our fears and other things to identify with our fears no so we need to identify all that stuff but we need not to identify with all that stuff but many times it's interesting because if we don't have a very robust sense of identity in spiritual terms we will just hang on 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 an identity made of suffering made of pain because that's the only sense of identity we may have built in time and 
of course, nobody nobody wants to be bereft of identity. So some people may prefer, well, I prefer to keep my pain identity than have no identity at all. So that's why some people may be terrified about being in the present, confronting that pain and realizing that such a pain is not part of my identity if they don't have a robust, real, actual sense of identity, it's very difficult. So that's also very important when we are trying to push ourselves or push others <laughs> to, to let go certain illusory layers of identification to make sure that we have a clear, safe sense of identity on the other side. Because if not, we may be pushing others or ourselves toward neurosis, not to our situation where we we feel we are living an identity where we have no clear identity on the other side. And that feels close to madness in many cases. No? So we have to be very sensitive in how we manage these things. But anyhow, at the end of the day, it's so important to, yeah, to embrace the present moment and realize when we have a, a moment of full presence, uh, basically everything is there. And no suffering, actual pain remains in, in, in the full present of the presence, everything we need is given in that precise moment, like when Parikshit Maharaj uh, asked Sukadev Goswami at the beginning of the Bhagavatam, like, I have one week to live. Now, is, is that enough for attaining perfection? And Sukadev Goswami chuckled, kind of saying, just a moment is enough. But a moment of full presence, that's the point, a full attention. Paying close attention, paying, be very attentive in the present moment, and you can realize all that I'm needing in the present moment is present in the present moment. I don't need to travel back in nostalgia to the past, trying to bring that back. I don't need to enter into an anxiety trip to the toward the future. I mean, whatever I need to do, I ha that has has to happen in the here and now. So anyhow, I won't repeat the whole class here. That's not the purpose. Just sharing a brief summary of what we were just talking now and today in the evening we will be having another session on the importance of uh yeah liberating ourselves from our thoughts and how how thinking can be uh how having thoughts doesn't necessarily mean thinking so to say <laughs> thinking deeply reflecting is one thing and just witnessing the un the endless parade of thoughts is not the same and can really get in the way of, of a life of prayer. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying all this so you become inspired to learn Spanish. So next time you can join us in our retreat here. <laughs> so that's it, a brief summary from here. We'll be staying a few more days here. Um, today is what, March 2nd. So I'll be staying here till March 11th, nine more days. And then we will travel. We'll be traveling to the U.S. for a few months to different places. So somehow or other, hope to keep in touch and see you, meet you on the road. So uh, we'll start with receiving any questions you may have, any topics you you may uh, need to unfold and continue chewing and ruminating on. That's basically what parampara is. Punabunas charbita charbunanam. Another version of it. Prahlad Maharaj will say, material life is chewing that thing that has been chewed. But spiritual life is also that, in another way. <laughs> chewing what has been chewed. Now we receive the chewing of certain 
revelation in Parampara and our duty as members of Parampara is to continue the chewing. As, as the as the parrot Sukade bites the fruit and makes it sweeter. And so each of us have to become that type of parrot, that type of chewer. So let's continue chewing. The chewing goes on forever. Kirtaniya Sadahari. Vavanu Tamchitra was raising her hand first. So let's go there. And hopefully Rasangi can stay with us for a few minutes. So this time we can address her question. Okay, so let's begin with Anutam Chitra, please. I'm not listening to you, just in case. Am I audible now? Now I'm I'm listening, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so Maharaj, uh, uh, I think almost in the 10 years of my journey in uh, uh, Krishna consciousness, uh, this is a question that has been coming to me in different shapes and forms. And currently in my own exploration uh, with the principle and concept of radical personalism, it has taken a shape uh, and uh, it's, it's sort of overwhelming. And <laughs> welcome to the club. Uh, no rush, no rush. Tears, Take your time. It's, it's part of the question and it's part of the answer. Those tears, no problem. Yes, Maharaj. No so problem. Yeah. How do I sort of put um, the greatness and the sweetness of the Lord in context? Because in Bhagavatam, when we read the first nine cantos, it sort of highlights the opulence and the greatness of uh, the Lord. And it's also quite philosophically heavy. Like it's, there is also sweet exchanges, but then uh, the greatness is more highlighted in those uh, cantos in that section. And then the 10th section, there is an overflow of sweetness where the sweet exchanges of the Lord with his devotees on a very radical, radically personal level is highlighted. So um, one thing that I have observed in myself as I'm reading through both these sections, uh, I mean, the only exposure to 10th canto that I have is of uh, the Krishna book, Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God, like Prabhupada's uh, book. Um, yeah. So in reading the greatness aspect what what i have observed in myself is that um it seems that the lord is so great um it feels so distant in one sense like it feels that the gap is so huge um like for example if i'm reading about let's say the creation uh of the universe or the universal form that's uh, mentioned in the uh, first and second cantos, like in, in sections uh, with respect to creation. I'm hardly able to conceive the universal, the descriptions of universal form. It's like it's going all over my head. Uh, so to me, that's like a reminder that this is the greatness of the Lord and in that sense, he sort of seems so, um, like, not someone that I can relate with as much as I can 
when there is the sweetness or the pastimes or where there are exchanges of intimate emotions between devotees uh so it it's almost it feels as if the gap is so great that someone as vibhu as him i, I mean first is what is it that i can do from my end to sort of um cover this gap and it feels that there is nothing that i can do to sort of close this gap and the second question that comes is why would someone as vibhu as him would i mean what is it that i'm doing from my end uh, and i'm not even asking this question from a position of low self esteem or anything it's like objectively evaluating it seems as if there is really nothing that i'm doing in order uh, in in order to give him a reason to close that gap from his end like the vibhu and anu like why would the vibhu reach out to the anu like for play with words uh, in literal sense uh mm. and when uh processing the greatness of the lord in context of sweetness uh the sweetness feels very sweet but then again it feels as if uh it feels far fetched like it's a privilege that i can never access in in one in one sense it's like it's the lord and his tribe so like that's it it somehow feels as if the way i'm processing the greatness and the sweetness is a little dysfunctional <laughs> in that uh, uh i i feel more uh, i feel that distance persisting that that psychological distance persisting even in reading these sections of sweetness mm-hmm. um uh so any any thoughts or any perspectives on that where it it don't it doesn't seem mutually exclusive like yes the lord is great also that's also a part of his identity but then the lord is also sweet uh, both go hand in hand and how the greatness does not in one sense divorce the human aspect to which i can relate to Mhm. Okay. Thank you. We have 108 questions basically inside that one. <laughs> so, let's see what what we can do with all of that, but of course they are all very very valid questions and very important ones. So, thank you so much for for asking them and it's of course very uh, very important that you give yourself space to present the questions and well happy that we may try to provide the space for presenting the question as well <laughs> those things two things have to be there hopefully each of us feel we can ask any question we have and we can feel there is a safe space provided for for that whether it is doubts whether it is uh, certainties that we feel we shouldn't be that much certain of <laughs> or whatever we may need to express of course including tears so thanks for all the offering combined so there are a few questions as you mentioned let's see where to begin well you mentioned how to process all this and you were open to question if you were processing this in a wrong way or traumatized way i think you used that word uh i'm not saying you are doing that but 
I'm saying it's important that we question our processing, not question to an extreme degree, to the point of collapse, but to remain open to for further upgrades, our processing uh, tool, tool, machinery, so to say, right? Sambanda, no? as we as I mentioned in the book, radical personalism. Sambanda is not only the concept, whatever it is, whatever concept it is, but how do we conceive the concept? Mm -hmm. Because we receive the same concept, so to say, we may be educated in a certain way in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and we receive certain notions, ideas, concept, theory, but how we are processing that, how we are conceiving the concept, it's that's important. And it's important to, again, remain open. There is not only one way to do that. There are so many layers and levels and perspectives to conceive one concept according to each case, each stage, in each case. It's ultra-personalized as usual. Uh, so we are we have to be open. That's that's the daily miracle and the daily discovery we, we must find. You know? How today am I supposed to conceive this concept in my particular stage to be loyal to that stage, to honor that particular chapter of my life and to move forward to the next one? So um, where to begin? Well, God is paradox and <laughs> personified. So in him, all these apparently mutually contradictory attributes coexist in full peace. <laughs> he can be the most powerful and he can be the, the most powerless in one sense, affected by the arrows of Cupid in Braj. He can be almighty and he can be all vulnerable simultaneously. He can be fully human, fully divine. He can be the biggest of the biggest, the smallest of the smallest, like this famous verse of the Upanishad, Upanishad mentions. Uh, he, he's closer to the closest, farthest from the far, and so on and so forth. And yes, this makes most of our faculties collapse. <laughs> because, and, and that's part of the intention of those statements, no? like, like to deconstruct the, the way we usually understand things. Like to make to give that caution. Okay, you are approaching the ananta here, the infinite. So be very careful not to uh, export your filters onto the infinite. Uh, that will create a very bad experience because the infinite is infinite. So all your limited faculties must necessarily collapse <laughs> in front of him. And there are different statements in the scriptures that have that purpose, are written with that intention that we are thrown, so to say, outside of our conceptual comfort zone. When we are thrown to a point where we can no longer think about the infinite in the usual way we used to conceive everything. And that's very important to reach that point. I mean, that very important, uh, how to say, experience of humility Humility takes so many forms, and one of them is, I don't know, I don't understand, I don't have an idea, I don't have a clue what's going on here. This goes way beyond my head. We we need to to be humbled by those moments, not like Brahma did in the famous Brahma Vimohan Lila. As we know, Brahma is a person who knows everything the most in this universe, and he's a great devotee. He's the the first one in our particular sampradaya, 
Brahma Sampradaya. But at one point, he has to reach this point. The Brahma Vimohan Lila, Krishna makes the arrangement from, for Brahma to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't want to say I know. I don't want to, to hang on this extreme certainty in relation to the infinite. I thought I knew Krishna, and then he, of course, in Brahma Stuti famously, he said, for those who say, I know Krishna, well, <laughs> I was part of that same club five minutes ago, but I must, I must respectfully disagree now. I don't know Krishna. I thought I knew Krishna, and because I thought I knew Krishna, that's the proof that I don't know Krishna. Because someone who really knows realizes that he or she doesn't know. That's what, what that's part of the most important knowing, to know that we don't know. That's not so easy to learn ignorance. That's the term we use in the book, docta ignorantia in Latin. Mystical Christianity has a similar idea. Learned ignorance, scholarly ignorance. <laughs> so, so we will find in, in Shastra many sections that that throw us to that liminal space, that, that pushes us into that situation. So, so, so we are equipped with humility to embark upon this adventure of relating to the infinite. And all that may be more related, if we will, with Aishwarya and this idea of realizing, okay, God is unlimited and infinite and how he creates and does everything. And then it's completely overwhelming and astonishing, way beyond my head. Uh, and I know that it can trigger some distance. Uh, it may not create some sense of intimacy, but also... That's not the last word, of course, on the absolute, but that's an important word. That's an important part of the statement. Because if we only hear about Krishna, about his Madhuri aspect, and by Madhuri here, I don't necessarily limit the term to romantic affairs, but intimacy, sweetness. Uh, if we only will hear about him like that, as Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur makes this point in his Raghavarma Chandrika, he will say, if we only talk about Krishna in terms of Madhuri or intimacy, what's the difference between that and, and describing my young babies learning to crawl? That's sweet also. So what's the difference between my, my, my baby crawling and Krishna crawling? And you will say, well, what makes Krishna special is sweet is that despite his learning to crawl in his Bhaumalila, he's infinite. <laughs> so the presence of Aishvarya is what allows the actual experience of Madhurya. If you take out Aishwarya, you take out Madhurya. There is no way of putting him. If you just, uh, because yeah, your baby crawling is Madhurya in one sense, but it's not Madhurya in the strict sense of the term as we will describe it in relation to Krishna. So yeah, Krishna's pastimes are sweet, are charming, are intimate, but especially this is because he's God. And despite being God, all this is happening in Brindavan, all this Lila, all these sweet exchanges, all this Gyansunya Bhakti, all this unknowing that he's God, <laughs> despite being God. So this Aishwarya is like a necessary backdrop hmm, that has to be there for the Madhuri experience to happen. If you take out the Aishwarya backdrop, Madhuri disappears also along with it. So that's why the Bhagavatam and other scriptures try to even first establish this notion of Aishwarya, like you mentioned, first nine cantos, uh, heavily drawing upon Krishna's God and source of everything, Krishna in the Gita. Similarly, you will find many chapters if you go chapter seven, 
uh, Krishna is speaking about Vibhuti Yoga and different opulences and so on. And it's like, wow. But then he will speak about Bhakti, very intimate, uh, how he feels for his devotees. But then he will go back 10, 11, universal form. Wow. But then he goes to chapter 12, Bhakti Yoga, how he loves his devotees. <laughs> so it's back and forth, no? back and forth to to play with this creative tension of Aishwarya and Madhurya, to, to have both sides of the same person properly in place. The Bhagavatam does the same. Even in those first nine cantos, it's not that there are no moments of sweetness. No, There are so many verses and sections where Bhagavan, like, I don't know, Canto 9, Bhagavan is saying there, I am the devotee of my devotees. I totally under my control of my devotees. I don't know anyone apart from them. They do not know anyone apart from me. That's sweet. That's intimate. That's before the 10th canto and many other verses. I won't torture you now with that. So even in the section of the Bhagavatam, when there is main emphasis on Aishwarya, still Madhurya is coming. So it's not like an overdose of Aishwarya. And then when you reach the 10th canto, when you may say, well, there you have the overdose of Madhurya, still you have Aishvarya putting in context the Madhurya. There are many verses, especially when Krishna is showing the topmost Madhurya, Sukadev Goswami will preface that or contextualize that by referring to Krishna with names that are more connected to his Aishvarya aspect. Like the classic example is, Okay, the top, the, the, the zenith of Madhurya or intimacy and love in the 10th canto is the Rasa Panchadhyay, the five chapters on the Rasa Lila. So what's, what's the first word of the first verse of the first chapter hmm, of the five chapters of the Rasa Lila? Bhagavan. Bhagavana Pitara Tri. The Sukadev Goswami starts the whole most intimate description of the sweetness of Braj, reminding us Krishna is Bhagavan. That's Aishvarya. <laughs> Bhagavan is Aishvarya. He has all this opulence. To put in context what, what, what you are about to hear now is performed by Bhagavan. Don't forget, he's not an ordinary boy in the forest. He's Bhagavan, and despite being Bhagavan, well, he's doing all this. And the Gopi Gita in the same way. The Gopis will refer to Krishna with some names that point to his absolute nature. But despite that, they love him as a lover, as a friend, and so on. So, so my point is that with all these statements, all of them have a purpose. We don't need to, as you say, they're not mutually exclusive. We don't need to pick among one or the other. But of course, according to our stage, we need to relate to them accordingly. Now, not every devotee will relate to Aishwarya and Madhuri in the same way. As we mentioned many times, the, the Brajabhasis in the Leela, to give an example, when they witness Krishna's Aishwarya, he's lifting over them. <laughs> That's pretty Aishvaric, but that nourishes their Madhurya. No? Their, their psychology and their adhikar is such that whatever happens nourishes their Madhurya. If Krishna shows sweetness and intimacy, that nourishes their Madhurya. If Krishna shows Aishvarya and otherworldliness, that nourishes their Madhurya. <laughs> That's how it works for them. Krishna lifts the hill and they love him more. They're not thinking, how can my child of five years can lift such a big uh, hill? He must be God. That, their minds that do not go there. They think he must be tired. He must need some massage. I will lift the hill for him. Let's feed him. He must be hungry. 
all these Madhurya-like sentiments come in their psychology. That say we are not there, so we can imitate that. And, and for many of us, we may need a strong foundation of Aishvarya first. Mm -hmm. So when we go to the Madhurya section, we do not take that as something ordinary. Our charities have made a lot of caution in that regard. We may need also, as I try to point in <clears throat> the book of Radical Personalism, a lot of foundation on non-dual thinking and understanding how reality is non-dual first. Before we go to the personalistic, ultra-specified nature of the Leela, <laughs> first we may need to have a more universal, proper foundation of Advai Gyantatwa, as the Bhagavatam says in the beginning, before starting with the Leela, before starting at the very onset of the book, Bhagavatam says, Badanti Vidas Reality is non-dual consciousness. So we have to understand what does it mean before we enter into the world of Lila. Because if not, we may see that as something ordinary, something separatistic, dualistic. Hmm? So when Krishna or when we read about Krishna, that's not meant to it's it's all about how we said at the same time he's the closest of the closest so again be him being the biggest the biggest helps us to further appreciate how, despite being the biggest, he comes so close to us. No? Wow, he's the most important person in the whole multiverse. And at the same time, he loves me fully and unconditionally. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and you will conclude in a way that probably brings you to tears. It's not that, ah, you are so distant. No, you are so big, but that's only one part of the equation. And that half of the equation helps to contextualize the other half of the equation that will create the proper impression of, wow, you are the most powerful, the most famous, the biggest, the everything, the most everything. And in the context of that, you are the closest of the closest, my most intimate friend, my greatest well-wisher, my biggest lover, so to say. <laughs> so in that sense, uh, greatness, great, the Krishna's greatness will help us to create the proper experience of intimacy. That's the very purpose of Aishwarya, as I say, to create the perfect foundation the perfect background to experience this Krishna's proximity. In the way we have to do that in our stage, again, we cannot imitate how the Brajavasis experience that same thing, but we have to experience our own version of it, so to say. We have to experience our own proper integration of Aishvarya and Madhurya. So the conclusion of that Aishvarya and Madhurya put together is an appreciation of Krishna's sweetness and mercy and love and greatness. Of course, why not? There are different moments in the relationship. There may be moments where we need to be, wow, no? full of wonder, full of astonishment. Rasasarchamatkar says the Shastra. The essence of Rasa is Chamatkar. You are the infinite, you are omnipresent, and I know I'm infinitesimal. But that doesn't need to create a distance on the contrary. Say, wow, despite. You've been the infinite. You come so close to me. You come. You have come as close as you can. So that again, using the fact that he's the infinite, helps to foster 
our experience of wonder and being moved by despite you being the infinite, you being the greatest of the greatest. You reside so close to me and you're inviting me to such a sweet, intimate relation, relationship. So we, we have to find a way of relating to all this. And, and also we have to appreciate the role of Krishna's greatness uh, to humble us. We need to be humbled. It's important also. <laughs> we need to be humbled. If not, we may run the risk of just trespassing uh, the proper etiquette, so to say, in how to relate with the Absolute. We are learning all these dancing steps. <laughs> and, and in one sense, it's also important to, of course, not, in some sense, we have to bridge a gap in terms of getting closer to Krishna, but also in one sense, sometimes the gap has to be kept in the sense of it's good to appreciate God as an infinite mystery, and it's nice to retain that sense of humility. It's good not to rush into wanting to solve the mystery altogether because mystery, Krishna is an eternal mystery and on some level for eternity. Now, he himself said that many times in the scriptures. I quote that in Radical Personalism. The ultimate statement of that is Mahaprabhu, Gorlila. Krishna wanted to understand who he is, who what his heart is in the form of Sri Radha and exploring that possibility in eternity. So there are many elements that we have to learn to put together and coexist naturally. We want intimacy, we want sweetness, and that's already happening if we have the eyes to see. But also we want the experience of wonder and astonishment and appreciation of God's infinite, infinite hood, so to say, and how despite that, He's coming so close to us. Mm -hmm. So I will say that, no, when going through these sections of the Bhagavatam and so on, it's important to appreciate that. This Aishwarya has a role to play, but it's to help put in context the experience of Madhurya and sweetness and intimacy. Mm -hmm. So the intimacy doesn't become just an ordinary affair, but it's super extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it, it, it may be interesting to, to go through in further detail the second part of in this connection, or we gave a, a series of lectures some years ago, the whole book is there online and the lectures. And the second part, part deals a lot of with that, like the like interaction between the interplay between Aishwarya and Madhurya, the role they play. They play in the Lila mostly, but somehow we can translate that and see, okay, how that applies to me here now. I don't want to pick one at the cost of the other. So I oh, know some thoughts that are coming. Again, each of these questions can be replied unlimitedly. <laughs> but we have to say something and also we have to stop at some point, especially when there are three more hands raised there waiting. So we'll I'll stop here, but never think that I have stopped and that we cannot stop at all. So that's just a momentary pause. <laughs> so let's continue with Rasangi. Yes. I cannot listen to yeah, you again. Yeah, now you can, right? I tested it yeah, before, no. so I think it's working today. No problem. Well, Maharaj, I have, I am so happy to be here and talk with you and everybody. And I have, I have a reflection, some feedback, and I have um, a question as well. Okay, so I just okay. want to say that um, what I'm finding, and this is so personal, and intimate, but I'm very grateful. So I'm going to say it. 
um, to expose myself, that um, what I've been finding is that I'm retrieving part of myself that I had lost. When I was a young, in my 20s, I was um, a really seeker. I was a, I would throw it all to the wind, and I did, of course, but I'd go to the forest and I'd sit and meditate. I'd go on the rocks at night in that wane, begging to know if there's a God. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now, um, as a devotee, I kind of have lost that kind of in the, um, maybe the structure or the, you know, the uh, the way mm -hmm. that we were taught. I, mm. you know, I've kind of, maybe it's bonsai or just mm -hmm. kind of been stunted or gone and now it's coming back and i feel so very grateful i'm just infinitely grateful i love that part of myself mm -hmm. and i'm reflecting on my hours and hours of silent meditation you know sitting and with my different teachers and begging to know god and then becoming a devotee householder having children going through the rituals and the motions but not really getting in touch and having that spirit alive. Mm. It's so refreshing and wonderful. I just wanted to say that. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We appreciate yeah. your words. Yeah. Thank you. And then my next question, my question is about, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a student. I'm a student of, of um, vulnerability, your cha chapter on vulnerability. I'm, stud I'm studying and reading it deeply and thinking a lot. And what I'm finding is that the realizations come if I ponder the different, um, I don't know what you call these. Are they postulates? Are they um, inferences? What do you call what you're bringing? Because, and, the, you know, there's something really special about them, but they're not like so well known. It's kind of new still for many of us, but they're just profound and realizations of yours or things that you're bringing and take some time to think about it and digest it, right? So um, I'm just loving where I'm at right now, spiritually and materially, if you're gonna say dually, whatever it is, I'm happy. I'm a happy camper right now. Thank you so much. And I look forward to more and more of this eternally for eternally that's what i'm looking forward to so uh, my question well go ahead yeah yeah i'm waiting for the question okay my question is about the vulnerability you equate vulnerability with empowerment that's so deep and i what i'm getting and you can correct me i really want to hear more from you about that that the vulnerability, standing naked, being honest, not knowing, not pretending we know, not having to pretend we know, um, brings Krishna to us, you know, allowing us to feel the wonder of his love. Mm -hmm. And um, is that the, that seems to be part of the empowerment. And I would love you to talk more about that. Mm. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, of course. Uh, what you suggest as a 
possible understanding of the connection between vulnerability and empowerment is correct. Uh, but as usual, that's not that is not limited to that as well. There are so many ways we can talk about vulnerability and empower, but that's that's one and that's an important one for sure. I'm saying this just to because we you or or any of us may reach some conclusion or some we may have some realization. Oh, okay. Vulnerability and empowerment means this. It's clear to me. It's evident. It's an epiphany. And that, that will be probably very correct. But we should be very careful not to limit the, the scope of possibilities of what that means to our personal epiphany, which is, of course, for us, it will be enough for the day. <laughs> if I have my daily epiphany, that's it. No, I have to do something with that. <laughs> that may be enough for not only for the day, maybe not for the week, for the month, for the year, for a lifetime. But still, we have to be open. My point is to be open to the epiphanies of other people, because some other people may come and say, oh, for me, vulnerability and empowerment, I have this epiphany. So we don't want like a, a battle of epiphanies, so to say. You know? Epiphanies are not competing with one another, but are meant to, to ornament one another, you know? to be part of a, a broader ornamentation system. But... Yeah, I li I like to. I like to. I mean, I, I will say I don't. I don't remember when that notion came first, like vulnerability and empowerment. That comes. Sometimes I may think, oh, this came last year, two years ago, and then like the other day, I was with. Okay, um, the God's unconditional love to us, uh, and I was thinking, okay, this may have started last year, two years, like to enter more into that. And suddenly I saw this, like, how to say in English, like Facebook memories or Facebook. Yeah, all posts that Facebook reminds you, you what you posted 10 years ago. And there was post one post 10 years ago about how God loves us unconditionally. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So it seems that's already there for some time, even back. And, and then, of course, there's no point in establishing the beginning point of it all. But... And I'm saying this because also one is being nourished also from things that I'm reading and hearing and sharing. So it's not that I'm coming up with all this cool stuff all by myself and I'm the creator of these unique one-liners or whatever. I mean, I don't like to to conclude that, to see myself as that and to, to have others see myself as that because I'm not an isolated unit. No? So I don't exist by myself and for myself and whatever ha happens through me is my own creation and nobody else can claim copyrights. <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. I, I am trying just to be a hopefully, uh, uh, how to say, an, an, an honest instrument to, to express whatever comes to me and, and, and put some words and extend them so that the message is passed to others and that continues to be passed in, in more and more refined ways. Basically, that's the, the broader conversation we are all engaged in and what means parampara, basically, in one sense. This passing and this further re-enriching of the message and so on. But if I have to think about something, I will I will have to give the main, main copyrights in connection to vulnerability and empowerment to Mahaprabhu and the notion of... as. Bhaktirakaksir Dev Goswami Maharaj will describe him, golden volcano of divine love. So he's so volcanic, he's so empowered, but also he's Krishna in his most 
a needy moment. He's in the need of a certain experience, as, as, as I described in the book. Uh, if we take vulnerability as, as these three things that Brene Brown referred to, she's a specialist in vulnerability, risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure, then Mahaprabhu is the apex of that. God himself showing not only the almighty side, but the all vulnerable side as Mahaprabhu, exposing himself to the emotions of Sri Rad, experience the uncertainty of entering to that unique endless space. And it is risky. What will happen if God enters into her shoes? <laughs> so it's very vulnerable. That's my point. He has all the all the facets of vulnerability in him, and the result of himself entering into that laboratory called Gorlila, into that experiment called being Mahaprabhu, that vulnerability gives rise to, again, a golden volcano of divine love, the most empowered personality. So that that became at one point so clear, the correlation between one and the other, you know, vulnerability, empowerment, and how we cannot have one without the other. No, if we just reach for empowerment without vulnerability, what's that? That's just that may end up in exploitation and abuse. So first, we need to be vulnerable to how to say to warranty that we are not exploiters. To warranty that the the, the empowerment that will come is is a safe one, safe empowerment. <laughs> because if not, it's abuse of power. Know, authoritarianism and so on, position and fame and power and imposition and dogma and control and suffocation and totalitarianism. That's power that is not used in a vulnerable way. Mm -hmm. But if vulnerability is first, again, as a foundation, before we talked about Aishwarya being a foundation to Madhurya or a backdrop, the same we can say now here with vulnerability and empowerment. So... So yeah, I need we we all need. I mean, again, Bhagavan himself is leading the way, and he's the all vulnerable. He's almighty and all vulnerable. Now, we may be, in my case, one percent mighty, zero percent point one vulnerable away. <laughs> so to relate to the all vulnerable, we have to be all vulnerable ourselves. Mm -hmm. And and it's important that we, uh, how to say that this idea makes sense to us, not only consciously on an intellectual level, but even in the depths of our unconscious where all this resistance because of previous indoctrination or previous samskars are. Because in, in conscious platform, we can say, yes, yes, Maharaj, nice, nice. But when we have to enter into that space, really, we will realize so many things get triggered from, from, the other, from behind the curtains, so to say. <laughs> And that's when we are really invited to be vulnerable. We are really invited to play out our beliefs, so to say, to play out our, our, yeah, the notions that we say lead our life. Because we can say, I believe in this, and this is my ideal, and this is my philosophy. But you have to play out those things in the daily life. If not, those are just words. And probably those are just, just words to hide uh, the lacking that whatever we may be doing, no, we can use those words as spiritual way passing. So, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm replying at all to your point or to your question. I mean, your question was if I understood correctly your conclusion and I could have finished my answer saying yes, <laughs> but just wanted to add some, 
some further thoughts on, on the notion of vulnerability and empowerment. And again, never never conclude that we are already being vulnerable. I mean, never never think I've reached the perfection of that, or, or never think that because I'm being a little vulnerable, I'm being as vulnerable as I can. There's always scope for further expression of that, for further progress. And there's no limit to that, technically speaking. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because especially when we enter into a, a life of love, or at least a life when we want to love, we are never as vulnerable as when we are loving, as I also mentioned in the book. So, and if, if the nature of love is ever evolving and ever expanding, therefore the nature of the vulnerability that accompanies that love will be similarly ever evolving and ever expanding. So we have to, to be at peace with vulnerability, to find rasa there, to find some taste, to remain fully exposed forever. <laughs> understanding that will happen in a safe space and of course for us to to be to accept that idea we need first to have some experience here and now of what it means to be fully vulnerable in a safe space so hopefully we can all together work for that so to say that's our attempt with tadatmia and so on not trying to work together to build safe spaces so each of us can be fully vulnerable and therefore fully empowered and and then wonder at the consequences of that. <laughs> so anyhow, some thoughts. Thanks so much, Rasanya. I just, I just want to say that I, I mm. totally feel that you're an instrument. That this feels so divine, and that's awe-inspiring as well. You know that. Okay. You know that uh, that the Lord could use us in this way mm. to help ourselves and others yeah being a channel like that is just uh wonderful and powerful mm -hmm. and very inspiring to me thank you thank you and of course it's not only about me he can use us all he can use all of us and we should be willing to do that all of and, and all of us are trying our best so yeah it's a teamwork as usual thank you so much and let's go to uh madhav's raising hand and we will let's see what shines in the darkness. <laughs> Sorry for yeah. the light. No, it's okay. Sorry to keep you that late over there in India. So actually, something has done someone has done something with the lights. Therefore. Uh so Maharaj, no problem. No problem. Is is my voice audible properly? Yeah. Sorry again. Uh, if we can hear you, yeah, I can hear you. Yes, Maharaj. So, uh, Maharaj, I uh, have been like, as, as you suggest, this notion of vulnerability and uh, uh, going, getting some empowerment through this and also being very personal, not just with the people around, but also with Krishna. Ultimately, that should lead us to being more personal with Krishna. So, I've seen since I've uh, uh, taken up this disposition to be more personal and to be more vulnerable, I've seen that even like during chanting or doing some other uh, devotional service, I've noticed this uh, deep sense of uh, there is more taste in it. There is more uh, depth in it. There is more absorption in it. But still, sometimes those previous samskaras of mechanical, uh, you know, like mechanical style of doing things, they come back and they like totally mess up the whole thing. So can you like give some pointers as in how as to how we can 
deepen our chanting in a more uh, uh, mm. in a more personal way in a more vulnerable way can you like point out some uh, points for this okay thank you so let's continue with the discussion on vulnerability again there's no end to that <clears throat> so yeah it's it's very important that we that we remain vulnerable especially when we are addressing uh, the realm of prayer, so to say, which again, ultimately is a whole realm, whole lifestyle, but it begins by certain official moments during the day where we are trying to do that. Um, and and it's important that we enter that space, sacred space, and sacred time in a vulnerable place, like like allowing ourselves to be fully seen for who we are by by Krishna. Of course, he's already seen us for who we are, but from which place we are addressing him. No, that, that's the concept of darshan, as we describe it also in radical personalism. Darshan doesn't mean to see, but darshan means to be seen. Sometimes we use the expression to take darshan. I mean, sometimes we are, again, sometimes our unconscious samskars come, the taker comes. Now, I'm I have taken initiation, and I'm taking prashad, and, and I'm taking darshan, and I'm taking mercy, and I Everything is in terms of taking. <laughs> when actually we, we, we should say, I'm receiving. I'm receiving initiation. I'm receiving mercy. I'm receiving darshan. I'm receiving prashad. I'm trying to honor prashad. I'm not a taker here. I mean, in connection to the sacred, I have to let go of that taker identity. So darshan, going back to darshan, doesn't mean I'm not taking that. I'm receiving darshan, which basically means I'm receiving darshan. Darshan means I'm being seen by God. So I'm receiving his seeing, so to say. <laughs> I'm receiving his glance. Let's put it like that. No, it's not that I'm going in front of the altar and seeing God. How what which capacity do I have for that? But at least I have a capacity to be as honest, as vulnerable as I can to present myself in front of him and receive his glance, which is coming in every moment and direction, but sometimes we need to to perceive that in one particular place and moment at, at, at our stage. And darshan means I'm being seen by him through the glance and the act of unconditional love, unconditional, unconditional acceptance. So I'm being seen by him in that way. That's an important, you have to enter that space. So if I'm seen by such, an, such a glance, how am I supposed to stand in front of those eyes? with full vulnerability, with full nakedness, with full honesty and integrity and authenticity, because there's nothing to fear. I'm in safe space. I'm being glanced with love. So I can be who I am because I'm already accepted. No? Again, I repeated this 16,108 times, and we may have to repeat it so many times more. But we need to enter that space and to be vulnerable but also to understand Krishna is being vulnerable with us. It's not that I'm the, okay, I have to be vulnerable, but Krishna is not vulnerable. No, if you are talking about entering a relationship of love, both have to be vulnerable. Both have to be naked and opening. And Krishna also is doing that. Don't think that he doesn't do that. Because if not, again, you are creating your own idea of Krishna, your own idea of, of the divine. You are vulnerable. He's vulnerable. He reciprocates, as, as he says in the Gita. As you approach me and approach you. You approach me with vulnerability and reply with vulnerability. 
<laughs> and, and that's what inspires us to be vulnerable to him. Because if you approach someone with vulnerability and they reply with the opposite, that's the last time you will be vulnerable with that person. <laughs> so it, 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 it wouldn't make sense to say, okay, I have to be, I have to be fully vulnerable with Krishna, uh, but he won't be vulnerable in return. That's that's not correct. Even if we think that, probably that entertaining that idea is what makes us not wanting to be vulnerable in front of Krishna, because still we carry some idea. Okay, I'm 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 here the only one being vulnerable, but he's the other person is not vulnerable, so that's not safe. Again, what makes vulnerability safe is that the other person is also vulnerable <laughs> to reciprocate accordingly to understand your own vulnerability. So I just wanted to pound the post a little bit on this point that it's not only us that we have to that we are vulnerable but Krishna is also vulnerable he's already vulnerable again he's the all vulnerable he cannot but <laughs> be vulnerable and when we are vulnerable in front of him he not only appreciates that and honors that but he shows us with his own vulnerability divine vulnerability remember don't think vulnerability is something ordinary so it's always reciprocal. It's always personal. <laughs> Krishna is a person as well. Don't forget. Don't make Krishna a non-person. Don't be so cruel. Poor Krishna. <laughs> okay. And don't be so cruel with you also. No? Forcing yourself to establish a relationship with someone that you conceive as in a non-personal way. That makes no sense at all. So all the things also help to... To remain in that space of being vulnerable during during prayer. This is part of my reply also. It's not some disconnected thing. To to burge things in mind, even to to pray about that, write about that, reconsider that, that helps us to enter into the vulnerable space and stay there. Because as you mentioned, sometimes we enter there, but sometimes there are some mechanisms, and it's understandable that get triggered and want to go back to the whatever mechanical execution of actions and meritocracy and everything depends on my effort and I have to to reach this place and to win this merit because if not, who knows how Krishna will react and he may be angry and all that type of false myths that we may have still quite ingrained in different layers of our subconscious. So I'm, we have to also be compassionate with ourselves and understand if we have gone through some decades of indoctrination, so to say, or of wrong understanding, basically, of false conception, not to blame anyone else. It may take time to fully enter into vulnerability. So don't don't lament excessively. No, don't chastise yourself like why I'm not being able to stay in this vulnerable space for three hours without interruption. No. Take it gradually also and, and be be an like have understanding of okay, I have gone through this, I received this way of understanding where I understood like that. And and mechanical repetition, as I mentioned in the book, I have to I, I have to deconstruct that. I mean catathonic catathonic you say in English, catathonic repetition of anything, it's a recipe for unconsciousness, not for consciousness. So that's important. <laughs> we want to practice Krishna consciousness, not Krishna unconsciousness. So whatever you do mechanically, catatonically, 
it's creating just numb numbness. No, you you are giving this message to your brain, so to say, you are creating this this pattern. No, okay, things this this is to be done from this place. So you every time you enter there, you you activate the autopilot mode, so to say, and that doesn't count basically. That doesn't make any difference. On the contrary, it takes you back and back. So again, when mechanical instincts come, one has to put a pause when you detect that, because of course that can come and you can be carried by that way for some time. <laughs> and they realize, oh my gosh, for the last five, half an hour, I was total into autopilot mode, catatonic repetition. I was like a cyborg, completely numb, unsensitive. My gosh, what a capacity, what a potential do I have for being unconscious? Hmm? At least wonder at that. <laughs> Express some chamatkar at your own potential and realize if I have such a potential in this direction, I must have the same extraordinary potential in the exact opposite direction. So I'm curious about that. Let's try to explore the other direction now. <laughs> so from that, you go back and you, you try to remind yourself about what's actually what you are supposed to do actually in, in this moment of chanting and prayer, and how to re-establish, reclaim your relationship with the name and Krishna. And you may be able, you may be failing again very soon, <laughs> but it's not a problem. No? Every time you acknowledge your failure, if you want to call it failure, everyone, you acknowledge those moments of destruction or mechanical uh, embrace. <laughs> when you acknowledge that, when you bring awareness to the situation, that's a tri triumph. That's a victory. Hmm? Okay, I, I'm I'm able to bring awareness, to shed light on this darkness, to bring awareness of this unconscious mechanical catatonic pattern. The awareness of it guarantees the next time it won't happen in the same worse way, so to say, in the same bad way. It will happen in a less bad way, if you want to put it like that. And gradually, gradually, the, the, the more we bring awareness into the picture, although in the beginning it may sound a little bit Mechanical also, it may be mechanical to get out of the mechanical <laughs> chanting, so to say. You have to mechanically take yourself back somewhere else. But the more we are bringing awareness to that with sincere heart and prayer, the more it will become uh, second nature, basically. Second nature. And, and you will reach a point where that's no longer an option for the mind to go there, so to say. There's no need to be mechanical. There's no need to be evasive. There's no need to be uh, numb. There's no need to numb anything. Generally, this mechanic stuff is, yeah, unconscious triggers to numb stuff that we don't want to confront in prayer. And again, we are humans. We acknowledge that it's okay. It's part of life. No need to go neurotic. But it's important to shed light on that and to remain aware, okay, all this numbing must stop. Gradually, but stop. No, that's an arthanibriti. An arthanibriti means not so much the byproduct of bhajana kriya, but an arthanibriti is I engage myself in practice with the awareness that, in this case, this numbness must stop. With the awareness of which of the unconscious motivations that lay behind my mechanical stuff and all 
I'm aware of these tendencies. I'm aware of the background of these tendencies, and I'm practicing with that awareness. So bringing that awareness into the picture uh, makes all these tendencies weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. That's the thing. When you expose something, it's no longer as strong as, as it was when it was not exposed. That's how it works. When you when the ego, so to say, is disguised, well disguised, and nobody can detect it for what it is, it's so strong. I mean, it, it overpowers everything, controls everything. But when you're able to expose it for what it is, game's over, basically. <laughs> so this is the same. We need to have proper, not only proper knowledge, but proper sincerity and openness to, to acknowledge the things, to bring awareness into those areas and corners uh, of our inner world. And gradually all the things will lose strength. If we are not reinforcing them, if we are sincerely wanting to deconstruct them and to pay attention to what needs to be paid attention to, to confront reality as it is, <laughs> as we are, uh, gradually all that thing, those things will, they will have no foundation. So those are some of the <clears throat> thoughts that come in this precise moment. So I hope that helps all of us to continue, yeah, going deeper into our prayer life. Thank you. Maharaj, I'll probably have to go through them a few more times to get the gist in. No problem. I, I need the same, no problem. <laughs> that I say these words doesn't mean that I, one has full realization because, again, there's no limit to full what full realization means. <laughs> so, yeah, we, are, we we may need all again, over and over again. Katayantash tamam nityam, as Krishna says in the Gita, perpetually engaging in this back and forth. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, Karneshwari has raised hand and then Bhaktarasa. Arvall Maharaj, I really appreciate your answer to Adam's question. And it's touching on some of the things I was going to ask anyway, but also I'm asking from a slightly different angle. I took, nearly took my hand down like about a dozen times because, again, it's about <laughs> chanting, which I've asked you twice. And also, Shweta, we asked you last week something, but even after all of that, I realized still things haven't fully clicked. There's still some questions. And <clears throat> I was reassured by you saying several times, it's okay, we can keep chewing, it's a safe space. Yes. So speaking <laughs> with, I was speaking with Shweta Dweep because we know each other from Ireland, and we re I realized during the week we still have some questions. I also have questions on other topics for future weeks, but this seems more the burning thing at the minute. Okay. So it's kind of a three-part <clears throat> question on chanting. And a lot of it, I think, is undoing my conditioning from 30 years in the Irish Yatra and how things were sort of like explained and drummed in. And, I'm, you know, I don't want to just be, you know, unappreciative because some of those devotees... Yeah, yeah. yeah we, are, we are not to blame here yeah. anyone else, so to say. Yeah, yeah. Some of those devotees are really sincere and, and, you know, it's just that some things are still a question for me. So three-part question. First thing is, well, it dawned on me after your reply to Shweta's week last week about how, I think you said it was Jiva Goswami would maybe say half a syllable of the holy name and then fall unconscious. Hmm. So that's the first time that struck me that because the holy name is Krishna and it's absolute, is there in one sense actually even a difference between one name and one lack of names? Because if the absorption is mm -hmm. in 
name can we really say on the absolute platform that it matters if we chant one or one hundred thousand? Is it more like our attention should be with Krishna and his name is his name, whether it's one or many? That's the first part of the question. I don't know if you want me to ask them one by one or all at once. Uh, mm, I don't know. Tell me the second question and I'll 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 decide. <laughs> okay. So then the second question is when you see devotees, and I've seen this where they're like putting so much effort into like mechanically trying to speed up their runs to get more names in. So like they start kind of whispering rather than saying more loudly. They start chanting on the in-breath. They're watching their stopwatch because they want to achieve more runs in a day. I kind of wonder like, is that defeating the purpose because it's all about the absorption rather than squeezing as many holy names into a time frame as possible? And, it, and then I might as well maybe just say the third, because they're all linked, which is when I joined and I first learned so much about, you know, how important it is to be attentive. Then I used to wonder what's the situation when you finished your, say you committed to a certain number of rounds per day, you've tried to chant them attentively. Um, but then other chanting done outside of your minimum that you've committed to, devotees, in Ireland would say better to keep on chanting lots of extra mantras, even if you're doing other things, even if you're distracted, because more names is better than not doing them. And I, mm. my question back then was, but they're going to be inattentive because you're doing other things. So how is that? Okay. So those are my three, three questions. Okay. Three <laughs> questions. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll reply them. Maybe I, I may not have time to go into the full detail with each one of them. But, of course, we'll say something about it, each of them. Uh, I think in many of these questions, you may also, not only you, Karneshwari, but hopefully hopefully all of us already reach some, intuitively uh, reach some answer to them. <laughs> so according to what we have been talking during the last weeks and months and years. So first question is, name is absolute. So is there is there any difference between chanting one name and chanting one up one hundred million names, so to say, or one thousand, whatever number you want to put? If one name is absolute and has full impact, uh, so in one sense you can say no, there is no difference. Uh, you can chant one name purely, perfectly. Again, the name is absolute, but then the question is how much we are chanting the name. Of course, that's the, the immediate question. Yeah, the name is absolute, the name is not different from Krishna, but then the immediate point is, are we chanting that? No? Because chanting the absolute name means experiencing Krishna's association directly without any filter. And if that happens, yes, you're all falling on the floor and crying and all that stuff. <laughs> so, which doesn't mean that whatever, unless and until that happens, your chanting makes no sense. No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, it's a gradual process, as we know. It's a gradual approach to to the person of Krishna, to the name of Krishna. Although he's there, fully present in the name, he's there, fully loving us and conditioned. He's there fully. You now he has done his part already. <laughs> he's inviting us to do ours. But yeah, technically speaking, one could say one name uh, is makes no difference to one thousand names. But also, I'm also quick to tell. Yeah, the name is absolute, Krishna is absolute, but don't remember, Krishna is also an ever-evolving person. He's always growing into his experience, into his beauty. So I'm saying this in the sense of 
if someone chants one name of Krishna purely, let's say, and experiences Krishna in that name, since the nature of Krishna and therefore the nature of the name, non different from Krishna, is ever evolving in sweetness and love, the person will want to chant more names. That's my point, right? It's not that, okay, I already reached the absolute level of chanting and I chanted one of those names, so I'm done. So what to do now? <laughs> so when we use the word absolute, we have also to, again, ask us, what do I understand by that? Like some static, ultimate reality that has no movement, no growth, no expansion, no evolution, that is always the same experience? Hopefully not, because that sounds more than like hell than heaven for me. <laughs> to go to a place where everything is the same forever. No, thank you. I stay with the agitation of samsara that at least moves in some way. <laughs> so that's why it's important that we properly conceive God and, and the reality of love and the spiritual world in an unfolding, ever-evolving way. So we are actually willing to go there. We choose that with our full <laughs> will, so to say. So that will be the first part of your, the answer to your first question. In one sense, there is no difference. In another sense, of course, how much have you, how, how we are chanting that name. And even if we chant that name, purely absolute, absolute, I mean, the, the nature of the absolute is absolute evolution and development in love. So if you chant one of those ever sweet names, the, the next time you chant it, it will be sweeter, basically. that that's the That's the notion. Krishna is at every step more beautiful. I've mentioned that many times. No? Chaitanya Charitamrita describes this. Krishna's beauty, he's the all attractive, but all attractive doesn't mean that he cannot become more attractive. <laughs> right? He's the all attractive. And actually, all attractive means he's always becoming more attractive. So his name is non different. Therefore, the name is becoming at every step more attractive. So one who really reaches to relish one of those names will realize. Wow, the nature of this name is ever more attractive, and therefore it's not enough to chant one name. And that's the conclusion that gives uh, this conclusion established very beautifully in Sri, by Srila Rupa Goswami. This this may be arguably one of the most uh, important verses on the on the name of Krishna. There are many verses in the scriptures about the name of Krishna, but this is one of them. Tunde tanda Sorry that I went through the Sanskrit, but it's beautiful. So he says, there is so much nectar in these two syllables, Krishna. He's just talking about two syllables. He's not going once, whole Maha Mantra, thousand names. There's so much that the only prayer I have is, Krishna, give me thousands of tongues to relish that ever-growing sweetness. Give me thousands of unlimited ears to properly honor the descent of such a current of sweetness. It's so it's too much. I'm collapsing. All my faculties are collapsing. That's the experience of someone who chants one name in the absolute platform with pure. He's begging for more, not only more names. Again, it's not about let's chant more names. Let's be able to to honor more the sweetness of one name, of two syllables. It's not just, Krishna, let me squeeze more rounds during the day without feeling anything about it, but let me increase the number. Now, let me increase the number of ears and tongues, <laughs> not on names pronounced, just to honor 
all the sweetness contained in two syllables. That's what Rupa Goswami is teaching here. And that's the symptom of that. So in that connection, of course, that's my reply to the second question. <laughs> that if someone is chanting quickly and trying to squeeze out more rounds. And again, we already talked about this many times. You know, that's not the way to do it. I mean, that's my opinion. Of course, some people may think differently and they have the right to do so. But of course, I'm sharing this on the basis of Shastra. Again, I'm quoting Rupa Goswami. We are sharing what Shastra says about it. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. And, and, and if not, again, if we become concerned with fitting fit more numbers, what, what's the, why, the, the real question is why I'm trying to do that. That's the actual question. Why, why I think if I have more rounds chanted per day, that's better. By, and, and by, and, and by, by making an effort to increase the number, I'm neglecting the quality of that. I mean, if that happens, of course, you can make an effort to increase the quantity and not neglecting the quality, and that's great. <laughs> but if if the price to pay for increasing my quality is neglect, neglecting the quant, sorry, the price to pay for increasing my quantity is to neglect the quality. Why keep doing that? There is some something wrong in my understanding there. There is something that needs to be healed and addressed and acknowledged. It's just that I'm I'm for catatonic repetition, so I don't have to face what comes when I stop chanting. That can also happen. Sometimes we may need to stop chanting so we hear other things that need to be heard that come as a result of our chanting. <laughs> so I should give myself some times of silence and introspection to hear all the byproducts of my previous period of chanting and confront that. And sometimes we may insist that, no, no, I, I will chant on top of that, so to say, <laughs> to, to chant more, but actually I'm using the, the increases of number as an escape, as an escapism. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, basically that, that we might reply to that second question in brief. And regarding the third one, attentive chanting, I think, yes, we have to chant attentively. Uh, also, I will emphasize again, we have to not only chant attentively, we have to live attentively. It's not about, okay, I will chant half an hour, one hour, two hours per day attentively, and the rest of the day I will be evasive, uh, numb, distracted, uh, non-confrontational with the things I need to confront, uh, loose, superficial, complacent, mediocre, but two hours a day, I will be attentive. Uh, that's not the idea. The idea is that those two hours of attentiveness overflow into the remaining 22 hours, and I remain att attentive means vigilant. Attentiveness is not just like, like a technical asset. No, like, I will be attentive. No, it means I will be present. I will be vulnerable. I will be vigilant about the things that start to happen. It's not just about... Technic, being technically perfect in not being distracted while chanting, that's not attentiveness. That may be more fueling my ego. Like, I'm I'm very, very attentive in my chant. I mean, you are trying to be attentive, not for attentiveness sake, not for, for you to receive some word of attentiveness. No. <laughs> attentive means I want to be present in that moment to whatever has to happen during chanting. I want to be attempted to capture whatever the name wants to tell me, whatever the name is showing. And I want to extend that attentiveness, that type of attentiveness, vigilance, 
during the rest of the day in how I relate to other people, how I relate to myself, what thoughts are coming, what prejudice, what filters I am projecting onto others. I have to be attentive to all those things. So you have to, again, share, shed awareness of those things, shed light on those things, mm-hmm. and disempower all those false narratives. Because if not, again, we can use the chanting just to create the, the, the opposite result to the chanting, basically. As I say in the book, spiritual life can potentially become the best excuse not to practice spiritual life, actual spiritual life. So, uh, so yeah, I, I always like to extend that. Now, every time, whatever we talked about chanting, you have to apply it to the rest of your day. It has to become a continuum because chanting is meant to become a lifestyle, state of consciousness. Mahaprabhu Sankirtaniya Sadahari. Chant always. Technically speaking, you cannot chant always. You have to do other things during the day, and you cannot be just chanting 24 hours, generally. Mm. So what does he mean by chant always? The, the Bible says pray without unceasingly, you say in English? Unceasingly. But how can you do that if you have to cook and take shower and do so much? So all this, the Krishna the Gita says, Satatam Kirtayantamam, always do Kirtan, Katayantastamam Nitya, always talk about me. What does this mean? It's, you, can, you cannot possibly do that in the usual way you think of those things. So it must be something else. All these things have to become second nature, have to become a lifestyle and state of consciousness. And only that way you can do them, perform them always, forever, without stop. <laughs> So whatever we apply to the chanting or to whatever, we need to see how those things apply during the rest of our day, which has to be an extension of our chanting. Because if not, if we create too much strict boundaries between my chanting and the rest of me, we may promoting spiritual bypassing because I over-concentrate in being perfect and attentive and everything nice during chanting. <laughs> And during the rest of the day, who knows what I become, so to say. That's why I say, okay, Mahaprabhu say you chant the name, Trinada Pisinichina, Taroda Pisaishna. But those things you have to apply mostly when you are not chanting. <laughs> because I can sit in my room very cozy, very comfortable, put an incense, everything quiet. Now I will be more humble than a blade of grass. But nobody's challenging me. I don't have any test. No, I will be more tolerant than a tree. And I'm sitting very comfortable in my couch and drinking my tea and chanting. So mm-hmm. in big part, all that verse, which applies to chanting, is to be applied in my daily life. And, and that's what Mahaprabhu means there. Offer respect to others. Don't expect re- respect for yourself. If you are chanting alone, do, do not have anyone else to, to deal with, <laughs> to offer respects or something or to not, not expect respect from. So it's interesting because this verse is like the golden rule established by Krishna Das Swami for how to chant the name. But when you study the rule, it mostly is to be applied when you are not chanting the name. So the message there is the chanting of the name is not limited to the chanting of the name, but it's meant to become your life. Yeah, so we don't have our life and sadhana, our practice and our life. At the beginning, we may grow with that dichotomy, dualistic thinking, but 
eventually those things have to become my life. My chanting is my life. My sadhana is my life. One thing is the other. <laughs> okay. Let's go to Bhakti Rasa's hand and we may conclude here today because I have in a few hours another lecture over here and another lunch and other stuff as well. It's... I I just have a um a reflection on what Rasangi was saying about relationship between vulnerability and empowerment. And I was okay. thinking, Maharaj, that um it's like vulnerability is really tied, I think, a lot with fear. Like when we're vulnerable is when we're feeling fearful of something that that could happen. And when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, then we are willing to face and encounter that fear. So <clears throat> it's within fear that we we play we give away a lot of our quote unquote power to that thing that hold that we're afraid of. So mm -hmm. when we are actually allow ourselves to be vulnerable and willing to to undergo the thing that we're afraid of, then the power that we gave away to that fear is then we kind of reclaim that. And that's part of the empowerment that comes by being vulnerable, by addressing our fears, allowing them to come. Because we find out that that they don't happen. You know, we're mostly afraid that we're not loved or that we're unworthy. And when we mm -hmm. come before someone and we we are vulnerable, then we the, the thing that we're afraid of when that doesn't happen, then mm -hmm. we can re kind of reclaim what we had given away to fear. Okay. Yeah, I will apply that to our situation in connection. I mean, I will relate fear with vulnerability in, in our situation, but I will apply fear with vulnerability in every expression of vulnerability mm -hmm. because, I don't know, Krishna is showing vulnerability and it's not that he's, he has fear <laughs> as we have it or Mahaprabhu is. And it's not fearful, but still it's vulnerable. So I, I will make that point. I think that there is place for vulnerability without fear in some cases, but of course, going to most cases over here. <laughs> yeah, your idea, of course, uh, totally applies and, and, and the importance of yeah exposing ourselves in the context of being fearful. I mean, that's why, as we always say, Krishna says at the conclusion of the Gita, when he's saying, Sarva Dharma Paritya Jama Mikam Sharanam Brajaham Tam Sarva Bhapa Yomokshasi Syami Masajaha. He say, in one sense, he's saying, be vulnerable, no? because he's saying, surrender to me fully. And it's like, wow. And immediately he will say, don't fear. <laughs> because he knows we are, we are trembling by by that invitation. It's like, oh. And the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, the same. No, He's inviting Arjuna to enter into his role, and he's saying, don't fear, because he knows. No? I remember talking with Richard Rohr. He will tell us, in the Bible, there the word don't fear, the phrase don't fear is there 365 times, one per each day. <laughs> because we fear, we fear, and, and we need to confront that fear, to expose that fear and, and, and vulnerability is all about that. And I'm being willing to realize that our deepest fears ultimately were unfounded. Now, of course, fear comes as the Bhagavatam says, Bhayam Dutiya Vinibeshatashya. Fear comes by a, by seeing separatedness in reality, right? By by perceiving ourselves and everything as 
isolated units, no? each one in its own orbit, not isolated loneliness, fear. No? So we have that, uh, unfortunately, conditioned soul means that, basically. It means you have a dualistic vision where you cannot perceive the unity of everything. So that creates fear. Uh, so the perception of duality creates fear. So we need to create cohesiveness. We, I mean, not to create, we need to become aware of the cohesiveness lying at the very makeup substratum of reality. And yet for that, sometimes we need to be vulnerable. We need to expose ourselves to to different ways of seeing things, as we were talking in the beginning, just to make a full circle. In the beginning, we mentioned that some of us have an identity built upon the false myth of identification with our fear or some other emotions. And that's our identity. That's who I am. And we are fearful of letting go, letting fear go, <laughs> because I cannot conceive that I have an identity beyond that. And to be vulnerable in certain contexts means to be willing to expose myself to this new possibility of being something else which entails uncertainty and risk and so on. But we need to go through that, yeah, to, to finally discover how vulnerability can play itself out beyond fear. We can say that. There is a vulnerability <laughs> that will be play out in the context of our present fear, and when fear is no longer there, Vulnerability will still be there in 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 a new form, in, in its real form, in its ultimate form, if you want to put it, yeah. To the point that God himself will be taking part of that as well. So, so now, yeah, thank you for your reflection, Bhaktirasa. And thank you for all of you. Thank you for the presence of each one of you, whether you are connected via Zoom or Facebook or Instagram that I'm doing this test experiment today. I don't warranty I will be doing that again. Let's see. Uh, and again, I appreciate the your questions and your presence and your affection and your friendship and your so many other things that make all this Sangha what, they, what it is and, 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 and keeps, uh, makes the whole thing fermenting in a healthy way <laughs> and, and creating new and new layers of bond and meaning and purpose and experience. So very fortunate, blessed to be part of this. Thank you so much for giving me that opportunity. And I send you pranam and big hug from, <laughs> from Kali. And see you next uh, Saturday. Still in Kali, we'll be here. So see you next Saturday. And as well, uh, I don't want I don't I don't want to extend myself with a publicity section, so to say, but also reminding you that these days. Uh, I will, it will be on Thursday, if I'm not mistaken. No, on Wednesday, uh, as part of our Tadatmya Sangha, we are we are launching a new series of lectures from different devotees, from different constellations, <laughs> devotional constellations. On Wednesday, Deva Madhava Prabhu will be, will be talking. The title will be From Politics to Prem. <laughs> so that will be an interesting discussion for those who will, will like to join. We have already shared information and also... Tomorrow, Bhaktarasa will be sharing with those who have been subscribed a newsletter that we'll plan to share on a monthly basis, once per month, and Tadatmya newsletter sharing some whatever has happened during this first month since we announced the Devotional Alliance and also sharing some future projects and activities we will have throughout March in this case. You can contact me or her, send your email, and we will add you to the newsletter as well. 
So, with your permission, that's it. Thank you so much, Sriman Mahaprabhu Ki Jai. Shri Harinam Prabhu Ki Jai. Shri Shri Gurnitinand Ki Jai. Shri Shri Gaur Ki Jai. Shri Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai. Gaur Bhakta Vrind Ki Jai. Gaur Pramanand Hari 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 Bol. Gaur Hari Bol. <coughs>